What is going on, everyone? My name is Sebastian, and you're listening to Sep Talks. Today, I've invited my friend Mike Cameron. He is a Canadian writer, speaker, and well, he literally went from bagging shit to building his own multi-million dollar business. Mike has an amazing story, and he's going to share what exactly happened and what led him to become so passionate about helping men tap into their emotional intelligence. Personally, I think this is one of those conversations that every single man needs to have at some point in their life. Mike was also a TEDx speaker back in 2017. The way men think of strong is wrong. His story and what has led him to where he is today is really, really crazy. So I, I'm excited for you guys to listen to it. And well, without further ado, let's get into it. Awesome. So I am here with Mike Cameron. Uh, Mike, thank you for taking your time to getting on the podcast. Uh, I know you're a busy man, but you know I, I know a little bit about your story and I am just so excited for you to share all the things that have led you to where you are today. So thank you. Thank you for coming on. Oh, my pleasure, man. I, I'm glad to be here. I'm a, I'm a little less busy than I want to be with this. Uh, this little there's a there's a little thing floating around. This some kind of virus or something that's I've, I've heard about it. Yeah, yeah. That, that that's kind of slowed things down a little bit. So as a professional speaker, yeah, I'm I'm not out doing a whole lot of live events these days. <laughs> so tell me about your your story, Mike. Tell me about where you started. Um, the events that happened before. Mike Cameron became Mike, Mike Cameron. Well, again, depends on how far back you want to go. But so, so I'll start with, with my business career because, you know, it was interesting as I sort of put together my persona, so to speak, from a, a professional speaker standpoint, you know, I used to always get frustrated with, with some of these guys and gals that sort of embellish their story to make it, you know, the, this big thing. And, but it, it was interesting as I, I started sort of writing my biography and, and my story, I realized that I literally came from bagging shit as a career to building a, and ultimately selling a, a multi-million dollar business. Um, and, and it's funny cause I, I haven't really, I, you know, I don't often talk about it. I, I, uh, you know, humility is one of the values that, that I hold dear. And, uh, as a result, I, I, I tend to sort of downplay things. And my, my partner now gives me a hard time for that and, and says, you shouldn't do that. But yeah, I, I literally started bagging shit for a living when I was 18 years old. I, uh, uh, I got into a bit of a trouble when I was a teenager and uh, eventually there was a job posting for a garden supply wholesale company to work in their, what they called their soil plant. And uh, it paid well, you know, at the time, I think it was, I don't know, 10 or 11 bucks an hour, which was much better than I think minimum wage was probably five yeah. bucks an hour or something like that at the time. Yeah. I'm, I'm dating myself now, but uh, anyway, so I applied and, and really, I mean, the reality was all you had to do was have a pulse and show up on time and, and you got the job. So I got the job and I went in and uh, literally was bagging steer manure for a garden supply wholesale company. And, um, you know, we started um, creating these pallets of, of potting soil, steer manure, all that kind of stuff. And you know, work ethic was something I always had in spades. So I started making a game out of it. And we started having these competitions with the other guys to see how many skids or how many pallets of 
of shit we could bag in a day kind of thing. And ultimately I, I, I knew that, you know, I didn't want to stay in the warehouse bagging manure for the rest of my life. That wasn't a, a super exciting career option. So, uh, you know, I worked hard, eventually worked my way out of the soil plant, got into the warehouse, uh, picking orders, working for the warehouse manager there, ultimately got my, I think it was a class three driver's license, like a truck driver's license, uh, not the big trucks, but sort of the medium sized trucks, eventually started driving a truck at the warehouse, eventually got tired How old of that. were you at this time? I was, well, I started when I was 18 there and I worked there for probably seven years. So probably, you know, 20 years old, but by the time I, I moved up into the warehouse and uh, started driving the truck, and, and did that for a while. And it, again, it was one of those things. Well, one of the stories that, that I tell that I, I think is important, you know, I recognized the value of hard work and relationship building early. So when I was in the warehouse, one of the things, one of the jobs you could do was you could be a swamper with one of the truck drivers. So that means if they had big deliveries and they needed somebody to help them unload the truck, they would choose one of the warehouse hands to go with them. And that was a great gig because, you know, 90% of the time we were driving. So you're sitting up in the truck with the, with the driver, you're smoking your cigarettes and doing your thing. And then when you got to the destination, you'd have to help them unload the truck. So it was very minimal work, very easy. It killed the day very quickly. So it was, it was something I really enjoyed doing. What I recognized early was the truck drivers got to pick who they took with them. So the first time I went out, I remember as soon as that truck stopped at the first destination, I hopped out of the truck. I ran around to the back, flipped up the, uh, the, the back, and I started unloading like a madman. And so the drivers ended up not having to do a whole lot of physical labor when I was their swamper. So guess what happened? They always picked me. Yeah, I want Mike yeah. to come with me. So as a result, I got, I got the good gigs and you know got to build this relationship with the drivers. Like I said, eventually... I, uh, I got my license and, and became a driver and ultimately I moved up into, uh, into a sales position. I, again, it's just, it's all about relationships and it's all about asking. So I went to the warehouse manager and I said, Hey, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of bored down here. Uh, what do you think if I, I got into, into, onto the sales team? And he said, yeah, sure, Mike, that'd be great. And then, you know, a month or two went by and nothing happened. And I realized that, you know, well, my warehouse manager, I was probably one of the, the, the hardest working guys down there. He had no interest in me moving up to the sales floor. So eventually I went straight to the sales manager and I said, hey, uh, I'd be interested in, in learning to sell. So they ended up giving me one day a week on, on, the sales, on the sales team and again, built my way up. But one of the critical pieces that I learned there, you know, and again, now I'm, I'm selling garden supplies. So I'm, I'm selling shit. And what I realized that nobody buys a bag of steer manure because they want to own a bag of shit. They buy a bag of steer manure because they want what that will ultimately give them, that feeling that they'll get when they plant a beautiful garden or grow a beautiful rose bush. And, you know, it's, so it's not the manure, it's not the fertilizer, it's not the soil that they're buying. It's the feeling that they'll get when they can plant and grow that beautiful garden. And so that was kind of my first, and again, I was probably 22, 23 years old at this point. And so that was my first sort of introduction into, hey, wait a minute, we don't actually buy things we buy the feeling that the that we think the things are going to give us. So, 
if I want to sell more things, I need to find a way to make that emotional connection with my customer. Mm, wow, and, that's, that, that's huge right there. I mean, and you talk about, when you talk about sales, it's such an important part to understand that the emotion is probably like 80 to 90% of the sale, right? Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah, that's, that's awesome. So, so you are working here, you start getting your experience with sales. Um, what happens next? Yeah. Well, so again, I kind of hit the ceiling uh, at, the, at the garden supply company and I, I recognized that, you know, I could bust my ass there for a while and, but I was going to max out at, you know, I don't know, maybe 60, 70,000 bucks a year. And at that time that was, I mean, it was a good living, but it just, I was destined for greatness and I knew it. So it, it wasn't going to be enough for me. And I, I happened to play hockey with a guy that was a, finance guy. He was, he was in uh, mortgage finance and uh, he was making lots of money and having lots of fun. So I said, what do you got to do to do that? And he said, well, here's what you need. You got to take these courses. You got to get your license. Um, and, and that's sort of the first step. So, so I ultimately did that. It took me about, I think it was a nine month program that I had to take. So I went and did that and I came back to him and I said, Hey, uh, I've done the program. Now what? And he says, what do you mean? I said, well, you told me this is what I needed to get set up to do this. I did it. And now what? And he says, Oh, all right. Well, he says, let me introduce you to my boss. So he did. And long story short, I ended up getting a job um, in the finance company there. And again, that was another mm. brilliant training ground from a sales perspective. Cause what we did was we sold, um, investment financing. So basically my job was to pick up the phone and call high net worth individuals and say, Hey, it's Mike Cameron calling. Uh, how'd you like to earn eight to 15% return on investment secured by real estate? And we do these syndicated development mortgages. And, um, so, you know, back in the day, I mean, we didn't have social media, we didn't have, um, you know, databases. We bought a book, from a company called uh, Contacts Target Marketing that literally was like a phone book, but it was a directory of um, CEOs, VPs, high net worth individuals from a lot of different companies. And we'd literally just flip through the book and I'd pick up the phone and I'd, I'd give them that, you know, 30 second pitch. And if they, you know, often they'd brush me off and sometimes they'd say, okay, well, yeah, tell me a little more. And, you know, what I started to realize was the 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 ones that really like to connect were often well well to do individuals that were maybe a little bit lonely so they'd done incredibly well in their career but maybe were in the twilight of their career so um in some cases were were more sort of figureheads in the business and they appreciated you know this young up-and-comer um, reaching out and, and doing his thing. And, and that was a revelation for me. So, you know, if your audience out there is, is sort of, you know, younger up and coming, recognize that the older established individuals in the marketplace, they respect hustle, they respect work ethic. Um, so, you know, when and, some, you, and sometimes that's really the only thing that you have, you know, like when you're so young, the only thing that you can actually provide is just the desire to work harder than, than older people, but because the experience is going to come with the years and the, the, the time do, doing the work. 
Yeah. Well, you know, I, I know for me, for sure, when I get a phone call um, <clears throat> from somebody and, and, and they're pitching something, I mean, that's, that's what I look like. Or, or, or if somebody wants to work for me, that's what I look for. Show me you're hungry. Show me your drive. And again, show me. Don't just tell me. And I feel like a lot of people these days talk about drive and hustle and work ethic, but only when it's convenient for them. Yeah, no, no, I'm willing to work, bust my ass from nine in the morning till four o'clock in the afternoon. But after that, I got soccer, I got kids, I got baseball, I got weekend commitments. So yeah, no, I'm not really willing to work that hard. But when I'm there, like, I'm, I'm going to work hard. And you know what I think is like, you, you, you mentioned that you believed that you were destined for greatness, right? Yes. And it's interesting to me because I believe the majority of people believe the same thing. Right. But it's, I, I guess, like, I would love for you to talk about what makes you great. Right. Like, if mm -hmm. everyone has, because I think at the end of the day, everyone really has a desire of maximizing their, their human potential. Yeah. But I don't believe that the majority of us get to do so. So, what is the differentiator that makes one person achieve greatness, right? Greatness while the other person doesn't? Action. That's it. Period. Take, take action, take steps. Greatness, greatness isn't a thing that has a limited supply. So my greatness doesn't detract from your greatness. Your greatness doesn't detract from mine. So, and in fact, you know, it's that rising tide raises all ships. If I can help you become better, a better person than you were yesterday, then, you know, that lifts me up as well. And again, we should maybe touch a little bit on, on that, you know, what does that mean? Because, because I think for sure, when I was young, I probably defined greatness by the size of my bank account. Um, and, and that's not the case at all. And that was one of the, the big things I learned. You know, my second lesson into we buy on emotion justified by logic came um, just shortly after I'd been working for the, the finance company. And I was, I was doing exceptionally well. I was making more money than I ever dreamed. Like I, I was getting paychecks that were, you know, the size of a, you know, a, a, a scratch and win jackpot. And, and I just like, I couldn't wrap my head around like, this is, the, this is one paycheck. This is incredible. And uh, so I walked into, uh, I lived in downtown Vancouver, British Columbia. So, you know, fa fairly urban uh, environment and hustle and bustle and fast paced. And I remember walking into the Porsche dealership down the road from the office that I worked in because a couple of the guys at the office had, uh, were, get, were getting fancy cars and we were all doing well. And I think I was 25 or 26 at the time. So yeah, I walked into the Porsche dealership and uh, I, I remember Bill, the sales guy, you know, he knew full well that we buy on emotion. So after he, he qualified me a little bit and asked me a couple of questions, and I think he got the sense that, okay, yeah, this isn't just a tire kicker. This is a guy that's, you know, a young up and comer that's doing well and uh, probably has the means to, to actually purchase. So I remember he sat me in that yellow Porsche convertible in the showroom and he starts stroking the leather seats and he said, oh, just feel that. Hey, like, doesn't that just feel incredible <laughs> wrapped around your body on your skin? What does that feel like now? Reach out and you got the paddle shifters on there. What does that feel like? How incredible is that? And he says, can you just imagine taking this thing out 
and driving up the Sea to Sky Highway. And if your audience isn't familiar, so Vancouver, British Columbia, one of the big ski resorts uh, is Whistler. And it's about two hours away. And the drive up there is along the coast. And it's a real long, windy highway. It's just a gorgeous, gorgeous drive. Um, but, you know, it's windy. So, you know, he's talking about the handling ability of this Porsche. And he's, picture, he's, he's describing to me what it's going to feel like when I get to drive up that Sea to Sky Highway. And then he says, how'd you like to take it for a test drive? And I'm like, fuck yeah. Yeah, at that go. point you're like, oh my god yeah yeah so so then <laughs> of course and then and then he does the old you know what i would call the takeaway close and after we came back from the test drive he proceeds to tell me that they don't have any in stock these are really popular items and yada yada you can't really get them but if you want and you know he so he ended up putting me on a wait list long story short the car came in he phoned me up and actually no sorry it was i i had ordered um a different one because because I didn't you know what sorry come to think of it it wasn't the yellow one that I sat in it was the yellow one that I bought but yellow wasn't something I would have considered but he phoned me and said we've got a yellow one in stock if you want it today I can give it to you today and I kind of went eh, I don't know about yellow and so I went down and I saw it and I just thought oh yeah this is sexy and at the time it was probably the yeah. only yellow Porsche <laughs> in the lower mainland. So I thought, cause, and he prayed on that too. Like, dude, you are going to be the only guy driving around. Like you're going to be known as, Oh, that's the yellow Porsche guy. And of course, you know, he stroked my ego big time. And again, my, my big lesson in we buy on emotion justified by logic. And I mean, I, I gotta tell you, there's nothing fucking yeah. logical about buying a Porsche when you're 26 years old. <laughs> <laughs> well, isn't that interesting how we, you understand the tactics, like, you know, what he's doing to you as far as like, you know, showing, like making you uh, emotional about the car, taking it away from you. And even after that, you're still willing to buy. Well, I think for me, it's especially after that, I'm willing to buy. I don't buy from crappy salesmen. Like I appreciate when you can help me make that connection. I appreciate that. And, and I look for that. You know, the flip side of that is <clears throat> I bought um, a new uh, Toyota Highlander a couple of years back. And I remember I did all my research and, and I knew exactly what I wanted. I knew the model. I knew all the features I wanted. I'd done all my research. All I needed was somebody to give me a decent price. And, you know, this comes back to the reason we need to ask questions as salespeople and the reason we need to understand where our customer is in the buying journey, because sometimes our customers are at 0%, sometimes they're at 90%. And in this case, I was at 90%. I knew exactly what I wanted. I knew the model I wanted. I, the trick in this one was I was taking my kids on vacation in two weeks. So I needed fast. That was my condition. I needed fast. I didn't care about color. I needed fast. So I walked into the Toyota dealership and the sales guy that greets me, he puts me in the car and he starts going through his thing and he's doing the same kind of thing that the, the Porsche guy did. And again, this is some probably 15 years later. And I'm just, I'm thinking like, dude, you're wasting my time. I'm already, I'm already sold. Like I'm buying a Toyota. I'm buying this vehicle. I know exactly what I want. All I want from you is to know I can have it quickly and I want a good price. So when can I have it? How much is it? 
And he went back to the textbook and said, let me tell you about the warranty and let me tell you about the features and the this and the that and the active track handling and the blah, blah. It's like, dude, shut up. I want to buy. I don't have a lot of time. I want to buy. So ultimately I ended up walking out of that showroom and I didn't buy from him. I went to a dealer across, wow. across the city and uh, said the same thing. I said, look, dude, this is what I want to buy. This is when I want to buy it. I just want to know you're going to give me a good price. And you were clear second, with that other guy. You, you, oh yeah, absolutely. you told him like, I'm ready to buy right now. Yeah, absolutely. But he, he kept oh. wanting to sell me because again, I think he had been taught that this is how, you know, this is the process. We tell them all the features, right. we take them out on a test drive and I didn't even need a test drive. Like I had friends that owned the vehicle. I knew how it handled. I don't need a test drive. I, I don't even actually need to see the vehicle. I need you to show me a, a picture of the color. I need, to, I need you to tell me how quick you can get it to me. And I need you to show me that it's a decent price and we're done. Mm. So the next place I went into, yeah, I mean, we had that transaction done within about 45 minutes. Mm. Mm. So yeah, it's, wow. it's just, it's critical to understand where your customers are at in the buying process. Cause otherwise you're just wasting everybody's time. So, at this stage of your life, you are balling, right? You are getting the fancy car. You are making good money. What, what happened? What was the shift that kind of made you realize, oh, maybe money is not the, the main, main way for me to determine if I'm successful or if I'm great? Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, and, and that's a good question. So, so I had the evolution of that for me was there was an opportunity that opened up in the next province over um so probably a thousand miles away from from where i lived but there was an opportunity to open up a branch office for that company that i worked for so nobody wanted to move i mean vancouver is a beautiful city um i'm now in edmonton which again thousand miles away in the middle of of nowhere it's northern canada it's cold in the winter times um, nobody wanted to move from vancouver to edmonton but you know i was young and hungry and i put my hand up i said i can do that so I moved out here uh, September 1st of, it was 1997, and October 3rd, 1997, I got a phone call from the regulator in BC, and that company that I worked for, turns out it was uh, a giant Ponzi scheme. It was a $240 million fraud scheme. So it was sort of a, a mini Bernie Madoff type scenario. And um, oh so here I am one month, new face in a new town. And it's like, yeah, now what? Because I'm unemployed. The company I thought was my future is not only out of business, they were, so, so the, the, the principal, so the guy I played hockey with, he ended up serving four years in jail. The, his wow. boss ended up serving six years in jail. And... I ended up losing about $12 million of friends and family money. So that was a bit of a game changer. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That, that, yeah. that kind of thing shifts, shifts your perspective substantially. I feel like if, if I was in that position, I would almost feel like I, I wouldn't want to be part of the, the financial industry at all anymore. Well, you know, the, the thing was, the concept that they had, the, the theory behind everything they did 
was was fantastic like it worked in theory they just tried to shortcut they got greedy they got sloppy they they didn't execute properly and and so i just i thought you know i mean this is a great opportunity to make a career make a living um so i decided that you know i I joke now that I'm on year 23 of my five-year plan because I looked at my fiance at the time and I said, what do you want to do? Like we can, we can stay here in Edmonton or we can go back to Vancouver. If we go back to Vancouver, I mean, it's front page news all over the place. My name's going to be mud by association. And, you know, at least out here, people aren't super familiar with it. I mean, not that I was deceitful by any stretch, but, I, it didn't have quite the same anchor around my neck out here than it did there. And at that point in time, the economy was just starting to hum out here. So, so yeah, we decided we were, we were going to take five years and, uh, and see what happened. And um, I ended up, um, yeah, again, long story, but so I ended up deciding I was going to open up my own firm out here and set up my own shop and, and which I, which I ultimately did. Um, but there was there was some hurdles, some hiccups, and it's all in the book too. I I uh, I, I kind of feel like I'm telling you my entire book. But um, you know, one of the things that that happened when I went to apply for licensing was um, I made a mistake on the licensing forms, and, and I to be clear, I mean, I had phoned the regulator here in Alberta and told them exactly what had happened that they'd been shut down because I, because I held the license in Alberta for these guys. So I phoned, phoned them immediately when I found out what was going on and said, okay, I'm, I'm yanking my license. I'm done. Like these guys are bad news, big trouble. I said, but I'll probably come back and want to start my own firm. And he said, yeah, yeah, that shouldn't be a problem as, you know, as long as you're not under investigation or the, or there's no charges, yada, yada, yada. So long story short, I ended up making application and one of the questions on the application was, have you ever had your, your license denied or revoked? And I said no to that. And of course, that was inaccurate because, because my employer had their license yanked. Therefore, my license was yanked. I just misunderstood it. So I phoned them up the next day when they, because they came back to me and said, well, no, this is like incorrect. And so I phoned him. I said, oh, okay, well, can I like resubmit it with the proper thing? I mean, clearly I wasn't hiding anything from you. I talked to you yesterday and explained to you what had happened. And he says, no, you swore a false affidavit because I had to sign, you know, it was a notarized thing. And uh, so now we're going to have to do an investigation. And I was just like, holy oh, shit, really? Really, man? Like, <laughs> can my life get any harder? Um, so anyway, long story short, they ended up coming back and saying, we'll give you a license, but not to run your own shop. You have to get a job with, with an established organization. So I ended up doing that for five years. I worked for somebody else, one of the big banks. And then eventually I went back out. I knew I was going to get back out on my own at some point. And so I came back and, and after sort of paying my dues, so to speak, I, I set up my own firm uh, back in 2003 uh, and then I actually just sold that company in December of, of 2019 of last year. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. So you, you established your own firm, I guess, like with, with all the, the ups and downs that happened, what was your, your biggest takeaway from all that? Well, I, I, I think the biggest takeaway is just 
you can't control what life throws at you. You can't control the outcome. So you really need to focus on the process, focus on the action, the steps, the things that you can control and do those things. So, you know, again, I, I screwed up. I answered the question wrong. It was completely innocent. It seems like a minor thing, but clearly to the regulator, it wasn't a minor thing. Um, so ultimately, you know, all I can do is control what I can control. And you just got to keep moving forward. And that, you know, became more and more important. And again, if you tie your, your happiness, your greatness to that financial success, I mean, one of the things I talk about often is, you know, they can take away what you have, but they can never take away who you are. So focus on becoming more, not having more. And, and I think that's where a lot of us get lost. You know, we focus on the, on the having, we want to have more. So, you know, we chase, we chase, we chase, we chase instead of focusing on the being, who do I want to be? Not, not what do I want to do? What do I want to accomplish? Who do I want to be? And for me, that's so, so when I, and we can, we can talk about this now or we can come back to it. I mean, I, I literally stopped setting goals. I, I don't set goals anymore. Um, and really? in, instead, I, I use a different framework. I set values, I set intentions, and I set milestones. And values, I mean, it has to start with values. We have to be clear on what our values are. It's easy to rattle off a list of, you know, compassion, empathy, and integrity. Those are my top three values. Okay, well, those are just words. What the fuck does that mean? So can you articulate that in a way that, you know, a third grader could understand what you're talking about? Then how do you know that you're living those values? So my buddy Drew Dudley, who's a speaker, a leadership expert, he talks about operationalizing leadership values. And so his process is, you know, identify your values, define them in a, in a manner that a third grader could understand, and then develop a list of questions that you can ask yourself at the end of each day that will tell you whether or not you're living those values. So again, rather than setting goals, I set values, then I set intentions. And like we talked about earlier, if my intention is to help Sebastian achieve his greatness, maybe that's my intention is to help as many people as I possibly can achieve their greatness, whatever that means to them. And then milestones, you know, milestones are going to be much more akin to traditional goals. I mean, I, I have to have milestones along the way. So maybe my first milestone is to get on Sebastian's podcast. Check. Mm -hmm. Maybe my next milestone is to have a follow-up conversation with you down the road, you know, again, whatever that may be. But those aren't the be all and end all. And the problem with traditional goal setting is we become hyper-focused on the outcome, the result. And the reality is we can't control the, the outcome. We can't control the result. We can't control that, oh shit, the company I worked for, it just turned out to be the largest mortgage fraud, the largest Ponzi scheme of British Columbia history. I didn't have control over that. So my financial goals were wiped out in a heartbeat and that was nothing I had control over. So when I make the goal, the be all and end all, 
I don't, I don't actually have control of the outcome. And then what happens is I get so hyper-focused <clears throat> that I actually maybe miss what's really important. So, you know, if we're talking about one of my milestones along the way, it was to have a million dollars in the bank. But the reality is, do I really want a million dollars in the bank? Because having a million dollars in the bank doesn't actually do anything for you. It, it's, a, it's a statement, a piece of paper that says, you've got a million dollars in the bank. But what it does, <clears throat> again, different things for different people, but for me, it's that peace of mind, that security of knowing that I can do whatever I want. It's, it's freedom, essentially. So if all I do is hyper-focus on that million dollars, then maybe I lose other opportunities to create that freedom. You know, maybe I sell all my possessions and I move to a small town in Mexico. Maybe I could achieve the same amount of freedom if I did that. But if I'm hyper-focused on that million dollars in the bank, which isn't really what I ultimately want, I want the freedom that I think it's going to give me, then I maybe miss out on other options that might actually be better for me. Or even worse, I start to compromise my values. You know what? If I screw over Sebastian, I could earn a quick buck doing that. That's going to help me faster to get to my million dollars in the bank account goal. But is that really who I want to be? Mm. And, and the answer is no. So again, it comes back to starting with those values because then I can just say, okay, even if one of my milestones is to have a million dollars in the bank, and again, nothing wrong with having monetary milestones. If one of my milestones is to, to have a million dollars in the bank and I've got an opportunity to work with Sebastian and I could very quickly take advantage of him, screw him over, and that would very fast, very quickly get me closer to my million dollar goal, then I just come back to my, okay, but does that align with my values? No, it doesn't, okay. End of story. We don't even have that conversation anymore. It's that's out of my mind. It's not even a possibility. And when we start with our values first, milestones last, it just makes it so much easier to operate. Decisions become super clear, super easy. And I think not enough people sort of take that approach. They, they, they hyper focus on that, you know, I want a million dollars in the bank account. Or, you know, for me in my early career, it was I wanted to make a hundred grand a year that was my big thing. And I was willing to do whatever it took to do that. Um, did I compromise my values? Eh, I hope not, but I certainly could have easily. And certainly many of the individuals within that organization did compromise their values. Clearly, clearly they went to jail. I have a question. I guess like I'm not really understanding the difference between a milestone and a goal, because again, if, if I have, if I have goals and I just follow my values, you know, I, I make sure that my values are, are matching up with my goals. With, what's the difference between a goal and a, and a milestone? Yeah. So, so for me, I mean, that language shift is important because a goal to me in my mind becomes the be all and end all. I'm committed to that. Whereas a milestone's just a signpost along the way. So you know, I run ultra marathons. So if I'm, if I'm, I'm running a hundred miles and, you know, my goal is, is the hundred miles, you know, I'm going to need some milestones along the way. Um, I need markers to know that, you know, here's my first 20 miles, here's my next 20 miles. 
So these are signposts, but you know, maybe I can still get to that hundred miles by changing the milestones along the way. So again, for me, that, that shift in language, it's subtle for sure. And, and I mean, if, if you want to talk about values, intentions, and goals, sure. But I just, I feel like so many people get hyper-focused on the goal and, and we're, we're beaten over the head with it that our goal is the be all and end all. We need to be committed to the goal. And that makes it very difficult to adhere to those values. Where again, for me, when I ship that language to milestones, I know that that's just a signpost along the way. And if I've got to change where that goes, I've got a lot more sort of internal permission or freedom to do that. So yeah, it's semantics for sure. But, but for me, that, that's powerful. That shift in language is very powerful. No, no, I, I actually totally see it now. I, I get what, what you're saying. And I think it's, it's important to think about it that way because especially at the beginning of like my career, for example, when people would ask me what goals did I have, it was very hard for me to really even understand like what a end goal would be. You know what I mean? Because you think, well, yeah, okay, yeah, I'd like to make a million dollars, but what if I want to make more? You know what I mean? So, well, so I kind of see that difference of like, that could be a milestone. And once you pass it, you know, oh, cool. Like you could look back and say, I did that, but it's not the end. Like I need to keep going. And exactly. I, I actually exactly. really like that. Yeah, because you're right. I mean, the goal isn't the end because we hit those goals. And that was for me. Like I chased these goals. I, 100 grand a year is what I wanted. Boom, I hit that by the time I was 23, 24 um, so, okay. So, well, now what? Okay. Then we, you know, we just keep moving the goalposts and we keep changing the goals and we chase, we chase, we chase, we chase, but we don't necessarily actually enjoy the process. And, and that's, what's important. So, like I said, I, I mean, you've got to be more committed to the process than you are interested in the outcome, because at the end of the day, you, you don't have control over the outcome. All you have control over is the inputs you put in. So when you make that the, the milestone, the goal, you know, my milestone today is I need to make five phone calls. Um, I can do that. That's completely within my control. Will, what will happen with those phone calls? I have zero control over. I mean, again, I can influence what happens, but I have no control over what the person on the other end of the phone says. If they tell me to fuck off, you're a loser. Don't call me yeah. anymore. That, that's out of my control. But I can control the number of phone calls I make. Dude, and it's so hard to accept the fact that you can't control other people. You know what I mean? And I feel like it's, it's almost like a process that you have to go through over and over again. Because I've run into situations where, you know, you, you care about people in your life, like your friends or family. And you know that, hey, like looking from the outside in, you say, man, if this person just made this change, they, their life would just explode, right? And yes. we think that it's so easy because we can see it. But at the end of the day, they're not going to do anything until they feel, they really feel the need inside of, of like, oh man, I'm going to make this change myself. Right. You know, so it's so hard, like maneuvering over that and understanding like, hey, you know, you can only control what you do. Outside of that, it's, it's, you're helpless, you know? 
Yeah, well, I mean, one of one of the the more powerful ways you can influence some of those kinds of things is ask questions. So rather than saying, you know, Sebastian, if you just did this, if you just did X, then Y and Z would come into play. You know, you can strategically craft questions around that. Is that, hey, Sebastian, what if you did this? What would happen if this happened? Or what would your life look like in six months if this? And again, frame it in the, in the form of a question rather than a, you should be doing this. Because nobody responds to a, you should be doing. But if you can ask me a question, that again, neurologically starts to make new connections in my brain. Things that maybe I've never thought of before. Now you've planted that seed. I can start to make the connection from here to there. And, and then ultimately the choice is mine, whether or not I'm, I'm going to sort of take that run with it, or, or maybe I'm just going to dismiss you as, you know, you don't have a clue. And, and yeah. like you said, I mean, there's nothing, there's nothing you can do about that. That's why, you know, the, the subtitle of, of my book, Becoming a Better Man, is when something's got to change, maybe it's you. And it's about taking personal responsibility, taking control. And I see so many guys that I work with that want to point the finger out there. And they want to say, yeah, but if they didn't do this, then I wouldn't that. If only she was this, then I wouldn't be that. It's like, dude, you have no control over that. All you've got is control over you. And if something's got to change, maybe it's fucking you, dude. Like, yep, enough. Yep. Mm -hmm. I totally feel you on that. I totally feel you on that. And um, obviously with everything that's going on in the United States right now with the Black Lives uh, Movement, you know what I mean? Like that has, it has switched something on my mind where I've actually realized that, you know, people that are on social media and, you know, you see this every single day. Like, I don't know about you, but I see it every single day on my social media where people are talking about what the government is doing wrong, what police is doing wrong and without getting too into politics. But I believe like that the only thing that we can do is like, what are you doing at home? Like, what are you doing when the phone is off, when you're talking to your wife, when you're talking to your husband, when you're talking to your kids, how are you controlling that? Because everyone just loves to complain about the, per the person next to them, right? Their neighbor. Yes. But in, in reality, they're not really looking inward and saying, Hey, you know what? maybe I've done something a little bit racist or maybe I've said something or thought something that I could have, I could have done a better job at that. But instead they're like, Oh my God, you did this. You said this, you're a piece of shit. You know what I mean? Like it's so crazy to me. It's frustrating well, actually. Yeah. Well, you're, you're right. I mean, there is a lot of people that are very good at pointing out the problems. Um, it would be nice if we'd spend more time focusing on the solutions. And again, it, it when something's got to change, maybe it's you. Uh, you know, that, that brings up a good point when you talk about maybe I have done something racist. And that comes back to a bit of a nuance for me as well. It's about changing the conversation a little bit. Because if you ask me the question, hey, Mike, are you a racist? Unequivocally, absolutely not. Not, not in the slightest. I, I, I feel like I don't have a racist bone in, in my body. But if you ask me the question, have you ever listened to a racist joke and not said anything. Huh. You know what? I probably have. I probably, in, in fact, I undoubtedly have. Right. Right. So when we can remove that, and I think that becomes problematic when we think I'm not a racist. So I'm, I'm, my hands are, are 
are clear. I, I don't have to do anything because I'm not a racist. Well, that doesn't mean you've never done anything that contributes to racism. Yeah, um, yeah. So when you remove that whole blanket statement, I'm not a racist, and you can start to look at individual things. So, you know, and, and we'll, we'll get to this, but, I, you know, I do a lot of work in the gen, gender-based violence prevention um, thing. And, and again, you know, lots of men, I'm a, I'm a good guy. I, I, I would never hit a woman. I would never this. I would never do that. I'm not a misogynist. It's okay. Well, have you ever entertained a misogynist joke? Have you ever told a misogynistic joke? Probably, probably you have. I mean, like any of us that have played sports, chances are we have. Um, but when we start to be able to remove that, I'm not a misogynist or I'm not a racist, and we start to be able to dive deeper into, okay, let's look at the individual actions I take every single day. And could this possibly be construed as racist? Does, you know, and it just by removing sort of that blanket safety net, I think it allows us to dive a lot deeper. And I wish a lot more people would would do that. And, and you know what? And I also believe that people that are racist and that that maybe they deep down they know like, hey, you know what? Yeah, I'm 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 a little bit racist. I'm I'm pretty racist. We are not opening the doors up for those people to say, yo, you know what? Maybe I need some help. Maybe I just, I have, I've never talked to a Colombian in my life before. And all I think, or all I know is that they, 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 they do crack or they do cocaine all the time. But until they have a conversation with me and they say, like, yo, like, I feel like you are an immigrant and that you are uh, doing X, Y, and Z to my country. And I say, you know what? Like, I, okay. Like, let me show you what I've done. You know what I mean? Like, there's no all openness to conversation anymore. Yes. And especially because everyone is, is, communicating through social media if you say something wrong and it's literally dude like if you for example said yeah i've i've laughed at a racist joke before because everyone has mike everyone has but if you said that on social media you could honestly get get like you know millions of retweets of saying you're a piece of shit how could you do that you know what i mean so it's it's just it's so crazy like the time that we live in right now um where it's like everyone's saying be open, be, you know, be open-minded, love other people. But the minute you say something that is not what other others believe, you're out. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, I mean, I, I've actually just had to remove myself from a, a Facebook group that's 10,000 people strong and it's, it's an anti-racist group. But again, the problem is it's not, it's not creating a space for discourse because if all we're doing is sitting in an echo chamber with, with those of us that, practice anti-racism, we're not actually affecting change because those aren't the people we need to talk to. So I need to be able to have the conversation with, you know, Joe down the street who, who is racist and, and allow him to express his racist opinions so that we can have that conversations and I can dive deep and I can maybe challenge his opinions in a non-threatening way that again, by asking those questions, okay, Joe, so why is it that you think X, Y, and Z? And then when oftentimes what happens is just by asking that question and being open to like legitimately opening, not why do you think that Joe, like, so convert me, make, make me a racist. Tell me why I should be racist. Why, why do you believe that? 
And when you ask that question that way, from a place of curiosity rather than judgment, then as Joe starts to try and articulate that, I, I think what's going to happen is Joe's going to start to say, yeah, you know what? I don't really know why I believe that, but somewhere along the line, that was a belief that got implanted in me. Maybe it was my, you know, maybe I grew up in a racist household or maybe, who knows, maybe, maybe I got mugged by somebody of a dif different ethnicity at one point in my life and that mm. turned the tide. Um, maybe, who, who knows, right? So, so when you can start asking those questions, that's when we can start to change that mindset, those beliefs, which ultimately lead to the behaviors. The, the problem is when we try and brute force change the behaviors, it, it's not sustainable. I mean, it just goes underground. To your point, if I have racist beliefs and opinions and I can't express them, I don't change them. I just bury them underground and I act in a racist fashion whenever the time arises because I've never had time to sort of unpack that, so. Well, in, in the same sense, people that are, are joining that Facebook group, I believe that they're doing it because they want to feel better about themselves. It's almost like, look, I'm not, I'm not racist. I'm part of this group, right? Like you see, like, it's not me, it's them. Um, and in the same sense, like if there's a racist person that cannot have a conversation outside of this group of racist friends and family, then what's going to happen is we, there's two circles, you know, like, like racist, non-racist. Uh, there's a bunch of like gray area in between. If you stay in that circle, it's just, it's never going to develop into anything different. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, like to kind of like close off the, the whole politics uh, conversation, because I think it's super interesting, but um, you know, I think what's happening right now in America, I think it's great. I think as far as like people being so uncomfortable that they are forced to really talk about it, I yeah. think is, is very powerful because you know, from, from my experience is, is, you know, you need to get uncomfortable in order to really learn something new. Um, so I don't know, man, we'll see, we'll see what happens, but yeah. It's an interesting time we're living in. That's for sure. Yeah. Do you see Kanye West is going to be president? Holy man. Holy yeah. <laughs> yeah. We don't want to go down the politics road. I'm not a political yeah. guy, but holy crap, man. Yep. Yep. Uh, but hey, I actually wanted you to talk about, for the people that are listening, how do you establish, because you talked about values, intentions, and milestones. Yes. I think in the past, I've, like, you know, in the, in the past few years, I've, I've really tested out what works for me. And I think I truly believe that for every individual, it's going to work out differently as far as what can motivate you and keep you focused. But for people that are listening, what would you, how would you recommend they go about establishing values, intentions, and milestones. Yeah, again, I mean, I think experimentation is the key. You, you touched on it. Um, everybody's going to be a little different. What works for me may not work for you. Um, my, my partner now, Michelle, she's, she's a list maker. She's very dedicated. She's a planner, whereas I'm much more fly by the seat of my pants kind of thing. But one of the exercises we did with my connected men's group is we we sat down and we actually did that exercise so we wrote out our our values and you know maybe we we brainstormed 20 or 30 different values that we thought we wanted to embody and then we chose our our top three and then once we chose our top three 
we define them and not the textbook definition. What do these mean to us? And we shared them with each other and we got to challenge each other. So, you know, if I said my value is integrity, okay, well, what does that mean to you, Mike? Well, to me, integrity is the value of living my values. It's about being congruent to my values. And then guys would, could, could dive a little bit deeper and challenge me on that. Yeah, but I don't get that. So you'd have to go a little further and explain. And like I said, my, my buddy Drew Dudley has a framework that he uses to create a list of questions. How do I know that I lived the value of integrity today? And so, or, or for him, I think his, one of his top values is impact. And so the question for him is, where have I recognized somebody's leadership today? So it's maybe a simple little thing that you can tie back to the values to know that, that you're, you're living them. So I think it's just the practice of, of doing things that will help you identify what those are. The other thing that I've done in the past with, with a group in a, in a workshop environment was much more around sort of overall communication, but this works for values too, is think about how you want to be described and write a list of words that you would love to be described as you know, hardworking, ethical, honest, um, smart, funny, whatever those things are. So write that list of, here's what I hope people will say about me. And then once you've done that, take a separate sheet of paper. And honestly, and this takes some real strength and reflection, write down the list of words that you think people actually use to describe you. And then you can see where the gaps are. So I want to be described as ethical. Do people actually describe me as, how do I show up as ethical in my life? How do I demonstrably show up as honest? Um, would people look at me and say, that's an honest dude? Or is, is that something that's kind of off to the sidelines? You know, they wouldn't necessarily call me a liar. So, so again, when you can make those two lists and then you can f- find the gaps, then, then you know where you've got some work to do. Well, Mike, and I have a question with that because I think there's a difference between wanting to have certain values and actually having those values. And if I want to be seen as an honest man, but I'm not an honest man, it, can you can you get to that point or are values something that you, you know, you inherit when you grow up and you, you, you pass the, the teenage years and the, the early adult years? Like, can you change that when you're 40, 50 years old of going from absolutely. being a liar to being honest? Absolutely. I, absolutely. You can. I mean, again, sort of mental illness aside, because, you know, there, there's, there's definitely lots of that. But we get to choose. And again, it comes back to this taking responsibility for yourself. And, and I feel like a lot of people will say, yeah, but I've always been this way. This is just who I am. And it's okay. Well, this is who you are because that's who you want to be. If you want to show up as something different, you've got the control to do that. This, these are all choices you make. If you choose to be dishonest, that's a choice. If you want to be honest, but you choose to be dishonest, well, there, there, there's an imbalance there. It, it's, it's not congruent uh, for me. And that's why I say integrity for me is, is sort of the, 
the cornerstone, the pillar of my value system because yeah, it's easy to say I value honesty, but if I don't behave in an honest manner, then I'm not living that value. But yeah, to your point, I do believe that that you can change your behavior. So that comes back to um, the emotional piece. So I talked about this before. So we're, we're talking about trying to brute force change behaviors. That's not going to happen until we change the underlying beliefs and largely the underlying emotions that drive those beliefs or the beliefs that, that, that make the emotions show up because we can try and brute force a, ha- you know, a, a habit or, or a, a behavior but until we address the underlying emotion that that behavior is addressing, there's no way we're going to make that sustainable change. Mm-hmm. So, so that becomes critical. Again, we, we make decisions based on emotion and, and we justify them with logic. So mm-hmm. those decisions to make those behaviors, those choices that we make come from somewhere in here. So until we address the something in here, you know, again, if we're talking racism, why am I a racist? What is the feeling that comes? Maybe it's fear. Maybe it's anger. Maybe it, who knows what it is. But until we address that underlying feeling, we're never going to change the behaviors or, or we're not going to be able to change the behaviors long term. And, and from your experience, you know, because obviously you focus on, on helping men um, really develop as a human being. But obviously, you know, men have been raised a certain way and men are expected to be manly. Men are expected to never cry and, and to hide their emotions and to be rough. How do you manage all that when you are talking and coaching different men? Well, yeah. So let's, so let's go back to sort of one of my, my key stories that I'll, that I'll share with you and, and where this came from for me and why this is important to me. So in October of, of 2015, my girlfriend, uh, her name is Carissa in the book. I changed her name. I'll use Carissa. Um, you know, and I talked about the, the being a good man thing. You know, October 1st, I went to, to bed a good man. Uh, October 2nd, I, I woke up a good man. October 2nd, Carissa had stayed at my place that night she was a yoga instructor uh she had a early morning class at 6 a.m so she got up at five got dressed got ready to go came around to my side of the bed gave me a kiss goodbye and i said have fun at yoga and i rolled over and went back to sleep i got up around 6 45 went downstairs made some breakfast and as was our custom i shot her a text at about 10 after 7 and i said how was yoga and i got no response which not a big deal uh, she wasn't a huge talker, but she's an incredible listener. And as a result, often got into these long drawn out conversations with her students after class. So I didn't think too much of it. I carried on about my morning and shot her another note about 8.30, no response. Had a downtown meeting at nine. So hopped in my car, tried phoning her. Phone rang and rang and rang. Eventually went to voicemail, no response. Went into my meeting, came out at 10. Still no message, no phone call. Now I'm starting to get a little bit, you know, that, that, that feeling in, in the pit of your stomach that just something's not sitting right. And uh, so I went back to my office. I had an 11 o'clock appointment. I shot her a text. I said, hey, let me know you're okay. I'm starting to get a little bit worried about you. 
we finished off our meeting. We agreed we were going to go across the street to lunch to sort of celebrate. It was a, a recruitment meeting. And uh, as I walked into the restaurant, my phone rang and I, I looked at it and it was a, a, a blocked number. And I answered it and the, the voice on the other end said, is this my camera? And I said, yes. And he said, this is Constable so-and-so. And I don't remember his name, but my heart just sank. And I said, is she okay? And he said, where are you? And I practically screamed into the phone. I said, is she okay? He said, where are you? We're at your house, we're coming to you. And I turned around and I walked out of the restaurant and I stood at the curb and I waited for what felt like an hour, but it was probably six or seven minutes because my house wasn't far. And this unmarked police car pulls up across the street and this big badass burly looking cop gets out, walks across the street and I walk towards him. He meets me in the middle of the street. And after identifying who I was, he said three words to me that would change my life forever. He looked me in the eye and he simply said, Colleen is dead, shot and killed by an ex-boyfriend who subsequently took his own life. We make decisions based on emotion. This was a dude that made a decision with very permanent consequences based on a very temporary emotion. And, you know, for me, after that, the, the subtitle, when, when something's got to change, maybe it's you. That's where it came from. Because I can tell you, I, I had so many friends and family around me afterwards, and they'd pat me on the back, and they'd shake their head, and they'd say, you know, Mike, something's got to change. Something's got to change. And, and that became my mantra for a while. And I'd get up in the morning, I'd brush my teeth, I'd look in the mirror, and I'd say, you know, something's got to change. Something's got to change. And at some point in time, you know, probably a week into that mantra, something's got to change. I added three words that really shifted my perspective. Something's got to change. Maybe it's you. And I started looking at what can I do to make an impact? Like I said, we can talk about the problem all day long, but how can I, what can I do to contribute to the solution? And for me, I had a lot of friends that wanted me to go after the justice system, which surely failed her. I mean, she'd done all the right things, had the right paperwork, had a restraining order against this guy, had done all the right things. And, you know, there's no question that the justice system let her down. But when I looked at that, it's like, you know, how do we build a better restraining order is akin to putting a Band-Aid on a ruptured jugular. And I looked at how do we prevent men like that from existing in the first place? And that comes back to that, what you talked about, you know, as men, we're conditioned, we're taught that we need to avoid, suppress, or remove any show of emotion. And if we don't understand the underlying emotions that drive the decisions we make, we have zero opportunity of living a fully awakened or purposeful existence. So that became sort of my battle cry that became my mission is to really show up for men and look to where I can make an impact in their life. And, and, you know, the impact is, is far beyond not being violent, you know, and I, I talk about this all the time. The reason I'm passionate about teaching men the art of emotional reconnection is because emotionally connected men don't fucking kill people. 
They don't kill themselves. They don't kill others. They make better partners. They make better fathers. They make better employees. They make better leaders. They make better citizens. They make better decisions. It's just so vast and so deep. To me, like I said, this is, you know, I, I would suspect emotionally connected men probably aren't racist. Um, but all of these, you know, men everywhere are hurting. There's no question. So, and, and to your point earlier, like we have to create a space where we can have these conversations. To your point earlier about racism, if we don't have a space where people that are hurting or have different beliefs can voice those beliefs in a safe forum, those are never going to change. And, and so, so I founded an organization a, a little over a year ago, about maybe a year and a half, almost two years ago now, uh, called Connected Men. And it's about creating an environment, creating a safe space for men to practice that emotional mastery. You know, I think it, it's widely accepted. Uh, I saw you were out on a run recently. You know, if we want to get physically fit, we, we go to the gym once or twice a week. We go for a run a few times a week. But if we want to get emotionally fit, what do we do for that? Usually the answer is jack shit. We don't do anything for our emotional fitness. So I've intentionally created a space where guys can get together and literally practice feeling with a group of other dudes. And we just, we get to drop the mask of the stereotypical bullshit. And if you need a cry, you can have a fucking cry. If you need to rage, you can rage. If you know, you, you need to express joy because life is fucking good. You can do that too. And it's really about getting deeper into that experience, whatever that is. If it's joy, if it's anger, if it's sadness, if it's hurt, if it's pain, but creating a safe container for guys to do that. And I, and I use the word reconnect because we weren't born disconnected. You know, if uh, I can't remember if you've got kids, but anybody that has kids or, or toddlers out there, they know that we're not born emotionally disconnected. Your toddler knows very well how to express their emotions, but somewhere along the line, and especially as guys, you know, it's been conditioned out of us and, and, and we, we learn to stop feeling and, and we suppress, we avoid, and it shows up as depression. It shows up as insomnia. It shows up in our physical ailments, all kinds of different places. So. Mike, and I have a question for you because when like for example you know i am from colombia born and raised i moved to the united states when i was 12 years old but latino culture overall is very you know what you hear about machismo right like i don't know if you've heard that term but it's 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 huge in 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 where i'm from you know what i mean yep. and it, it's always like the the man is you know he provides food he provides house you know like he he's, he takes care of the bills the woman cleans the house, um, you know, gets the, the kids ready for bed. The woman is almost like the, the loving one, right? Like, well, the father is like the hardworking one. Um, and it's crazy to see because even in my, my close family, right? Like my family is very much about hiding their feelings yes. and about showing how tough they are. And I think partly because of how fucked up their life has been. Like, to be honest, like they've gone through some shit that I can't even imagine. 
You mm-hmm. know what I mean? And that's why we're in the United States because of that same reason. But um, it, it's, I don't know, it's just, it's, it's hard for me to see people around me. And obviously not to say that I'm like 100% emotionally connected with myself, but I do think that I, I, I am a little bit more connected with my emotions than, than the majority of my family. Um, so I guess it's like, what, what can you do, you know, for, for those listening who are, you know, either men or have, have children, what could they do to help their children or help themselves be more emotionally connected rather than feeling like they have to put up a front so that right. society can, can accept them? Yeah. Well, first off, I mean, I, I think you, you got to stop giving a fuck about anybody else. Um, Cause it just, it really doesn't serve you. But I, I use the framework, I use an acronym called SOAR, uh, S-O-A-R. So S, slow down. Just take that pause. Slow down. O is open up. Open up is twofold. One, you've got to open up yourself to allow whatever's coming up for you to just come up. The second part of open up is what I talk about with our connected men's group is share. If I can tell you, Sebastian, this is, this is what I'm feeling right now. This is what's coming up for me. It's not about judgment. And that's the A, acceptance. So when we can slow down, we can open up to whatever's coming up. We then need to learn to accept that. Whatever it is, if it's hurt, if it's rage, if it's anger, if it's happiness, if it's sadness, just accept it. I think far too often we, again, we're conditioned as to what's acceptable feelings and what's not. So if I feel guilty about something, then I start feeling bad about feeling bad and it becomes this big downward spiral. So just learning to accept that whatever's coming up is coming up and and that's okay. And that's okay. I don't need to fix it. I just need to slow down. I need to open up. I need to accept whatever's coming up. And once I can do that, then I can reconnect or reconnect with that deepest part of who I truly am. And only then can I really show up for the rest of the world. You know, and I think we often do it backwards. We try and show up for the rest of the world, and especially as men. Right? We want to be the provider. We want to be the this. We want to be the that. But the problem is, is if we're not connected to self, it's going to go sideways. And to your point earlier about your family has gone through trauma and turned sort of inward to bury that stuff. And certainly for many of us, this happens in childhood. We have some kind of traumatic event, or maybe it's not even a huge traumatic event, but there's something in us in our childhood that we just don't have the capacity to deal with. So as kids, you know, our capacity to deal with things is often pretty small. So we turn to these coping mechanisms. And so especially for those that have been abused or, or you know, on, on whatever sort of spectrum of abuse there is, the coping mechanism is I curl up into a little ball and I bury that shit because I fucking have to. And there's times where, yeah, maybe you do, maybe you have to. But what happens is we hold on to that as a coping mechanism as we continue to grow and get older and older. 
And we never stopped to say, you know what? That worked for me when I was five and I just didn't have the fucking tools to deal with shit. So I had to bury that stuff. Now I'm 45 or 35 or 55 or whatever it is. I actually do have the tools. So maybe, just maybe, it's time for me to slow down, open up, accept what's there, and then I can reconnect. And when I can do that, I can guarantee you, your sleep is going to be much better. Your relationships are going to be that much stronger. And being able to share this with your partner if you're in a relationship is huge. Because usually it's those those undealt with feelings that cause our conflict. So when I can say to my partner, and and Michelle and I have had these conversations right from the get-go, when I can say, you know what, babe, I'm feeling whatever. This is no reflection on you. Whatever you did, I'm feeling this. And 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 it's me, I'm feeling it. So I just, I need you to understand this is what I'm feeling. It's not your responsibility, but I need you to understand this is what I'm feeling. It's going to take me something to work through it. And again, when we can have that kind of communication and we can understand where things are coming from, because usually what happens is, you know, if I'm feeling resentment because, you know, she took off an extra two days this week and I had to work harder to pay the bills and I'm resentful of that. Usually I'm not going to say it because I'm a guy, I'm just supposed to suck it up, but I don't deal with it. And I start treating her like shit because I'm resentful because she got two extra days off that I didn't get. And then she's like, well, what the fuck? Why is he being an asshole? Whereas if I could say, look, babe, you know what? I'm super happy that you got to take two extra days off. I just need you to understand it's not rational, but, but I'm feeling a little bit of resentment come up for that. Not your issue. It's mine, but I'm just going to need your help support um, as I move through this. And I, and I, I don't need you to fix it. I just need you to hold space for me and, and know that this is what's coming up for me and, and I'll deal with it. So if I react a certain way, um, this is, this is why. And, you know, nine times out of 10, even once you articulate that, once you open up and share that, those feelings just disappear. Like it's fucking magic. It, it, it is absolutely magic. Love it, man. Love it. That's really, really good. No, man, thank you so much. And, you know, I, I also know that this, this event led you to uh, doing a TED Talk in yes. the future, right? Like I'd love for you to kind of share your story, like your, your experience with that. Yeah, well, again, so for me, it was about, okay, so how do I show up in the world? How can I make an impact? What message can I convey? Where are my skills? And, I, and I've been speaking uh, professionally for, you know, 20 some odd years in some capacity as I built my business, as I started getting better and better. I had people reach out to me. They wanted to share, me to share my story, my skills, how I do the things that I do. So I became a fairly decent public speaker. Um, no, I'm backtracking that. I'm a fucking good public speaker. Um, <laughs> that that's one of the areas I work on. Like I, I uh, that sort of self confidence issue, the 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 sort of tentative nature. My my mantra this year is I am bold. Um, so yeah, I'm a fucking good public speaker. So I had an opportunity to make an impact. So 
I put in an application to do to do a TEDx, and the TEDx I talk about redefining badass. The way men think about strong is wrong, and you know Colleen used to always tease me. I'm I'm reverting back to her real name now, so. Um, used to tease me about how badass I was as, as a business owner, as a uh, rock climber, ice climber, Ironman, ultra marathoner, you know, she would always tease me about how badass I was. And as a guy that was always more nerd than jock, you know, not one of the cool kids in, in high school, so to speak, you know, it made my heart swell with pride when she'd do that. So, so I've got a story that I share about what does it really mean to be a badass? And, and I'll save that for your listeners. They can go check out the TEDx. Um, and then, of course, I tell uh, her story and, and where that led me and, and what it really means to be a badass. And for me, that is about having the courage to open up, allow those feelings to come up, to sit with them, to observe them, to learn from them what we can. Curiosity and wonder are the two big words I would use, you know, rather, rather than suppress and avoid, let's get curious and observe them with wonder. See what we can learn. No, man. I mean, I think as you, as you tell us this story, you know, it's, it almost makes me feel like it's so simple how easily we could change our lives. You know what I mean? Like how it's like, if you just looked inward and if you just believe, like you looked at what you're doing yourself and then say, maybe I can be better. You know, maybe the world wouldn't be where it's at right now. And I don't think the world is shit. I I love that I'm living it through this time right now, but um, I think more like individually people could be way happier if they just, they're, they, they were doing what, what you're talking about. So um, so I'm, I'm really happy that, Go, go ahead, go ahead. Well, I was going to say just a reminder that it's a practice. Like it's not a destination. And, and this, is, this is not something that you will always do, but it's something you practice. So again, I, I like to remove the word try and insert the word practice. So I don't try anything. I practice everything. Because when I try something, it means I tried that. Ah, it didn't work for me. I failed. Uh, or I tried it and I passed. Whereas if I practice... I know that it's just ongoing and every single time I implement that thing, I get just a little bit better. So my advice would be remove the word, try, insert the word practice. Love it. Love it. Love it, man. Yeah. Dude. So, I mean, please like plug yourself in, let us know where people can find you, connect with you. And a lot of, a lot of men, including myself, you know, we need to, uh, again, like listen to people like you that, have been through some hard shit and we can learn what it truly means to be a good person and a good man. Um, so yeah, man, like where, where can they find you? Yeah. So my website is uh, mikecameron.ca. So I'm up in Canada. So it's .ca. Uh, I do a daily weekday Facebook live every morning at eight 30 mountain time. Uh, so you can find that by going to mikecameron.ca slash Facebook. And uh, you can find me there. That's probably the best way to interactively connect with me. Um, my book, Becoming a Better Man, When Something's Got to Change, Maybe It's You, is available on Amazon. Uh, I think it's in all the Barnes and Nobles and things like that, too. So it's, it, it's out there. Awesome, man. Well, dude, thank you so much. Again, like, if, if there's anything I can do to help you, um, let me know. But obviously, we'll keep in touch and, and all that stuff. But... I just, I appreciate you, your time and sharing your story, which is, I'm sure not easy to share. Maybe it is now, but at the beginning, I'm sure it wasn't easy. And, um, 
it definitely gave me a lot to think about myself. Um, so, so yeah, man, thank you so much. No, my pleasure, man. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Well, there you guys go. That is Mike Cameron's story. Mike, thank you so much for sharing your story with us. Uh, really giving us a new perspective on what it means to be emotionally intelligent. And well, thank you guys for listening to the show. I appreciate all of you. And if you ever want to connect with me on social media, just follow me at Sebas Garcia X. Um, but yeah, I think that's pretty much it for this week. I will talk to you guys later. Peace.